Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. I'm your host, novice paranormalist, Kenny Dodson, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, the real paranormalist, Patty Wilson. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be here with you tonight. Um, we're really looking forward to discussing an interesting topic. I don't know if we're going to have a copyright issue, but it's who you going to call. So today we're going to focus on what kind of paranormal investigative teams you should be looking into, um, things that Patty's experienced over the years on, you know, how people just want to be famous sometimes and they don't really want to do the work and they don't really want to help people. So we're going to try to help out if you have a paranormal problem, who you can contact. So who are you going to call? So let's begin. So who are you going to call whenever you find out your house is haunted and you don't know what to do about it? Um, a lot of people usually start out with word of mouth from friends. And, and today, because there's all the ghost hunting shows, everybody thinks they're a ghost hunter. So, um, you know, your sister's best friend's brother is a ghost hunter. So you call him in and maybe he knows what he's doing and maybe he doesn't. And you may end up making the haunting a lot worse or um, it may not help at all. Once in a while, they do know exactly what they're doing, but there should be some criteria. I've always said this, that there should be a criteria for it. So some of the things that I would look for would be a group that's been established for a long time, one that's not being asking, asking you to pay them money, um, because there's really no way to guarantee this. I've been doing it for 30 some years. I don't take a penny because I can't guarantee the ghost is going to go and I can't go guarantee it's going to stay. So I, I do the best I can every time, but that's what there is for everybody. You, you can't guarantee anything. Um, some people like psychic groups. Some people like scientific groups. Some people like a group that's got a little bit of both. I personally am a big fan of groups that have a little bit of both. Um, look at not just their website. A lot of slick websites are out there these days because everybody and their uncle knows how to build one these days. But what you're looking for is a group that's been there for 10, 15, 20 years who've worked a lot of cases and know their stuff. So you have to talk to them. And um, I know we had talked the other week, we were talking on this subject, and I talked to you a little bit about trust and, um, and ghost hunting. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, definitely. And especially when a lot of people out there will be like, you know, who are you going to call? Well, you can't really phone 911 and go, hey, there's a ghost in my house. So, um, well, what is the benefit of going with a paranormal research team versus, say, a church? Well, a church, first of all, usually won't do it. It's that simple. It is a very rare event to find a church that's willing to come in and deal with a paranormal issue. Um, a research team will tend to come in and um, document but um, then that leaves you with the question of what do I do when they leave? Um, it's probably the biggest issue I had with the TV show Ghost Hunters is, you know, they would go in and they would say, yep, yeah, got a ghost. Good luck with that. <laughs> Peace <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would leave and I'm like, okay, you didn't do anything. The people aren't any better off for you having been there. Mm -hmm. So um, you want to find a group that's going to be willing to work on helping you now that has to be a realistic expectation and it's different in every instance you know it may not be that the ghost is going to go away maybe you're going to have to make some accommodations maybe both you and the ghost are going to have to make some accommodations um 
But you have to find somebody who's realistically going to help you to the best of their ability, who's going to give you the lay of the land and talk to you and work this out with you. Not um, just, you know, yep, it's a ghost. We got some great EVP. Let's go. Yeah, just for your social media accounts or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and I think that every group starts out with that, that need to get that great EVP. Um, I'm 30 years into it. I don't care. So at this point in my life, you know, if we get an EVP, we get an EVP. If we don't, we don't. We go into a house and the um, criteria is how do we make the home better, safer, happier for the family that's being haunted. Um, sometimes it's also how do we help the person who's there to cross over because they may just be lost, confused, what have you. And they need some assistance too. And they're still human beings. So those are the, the things that are at play in our heads. And in any good paranormal group, I think, those should be the things that are at play. Yes, you may get a good EVP, certainly a good photograph. That stuff's wonderful. It's great documentation. Uh, sometimes it even helps you to figure out um, what's going on, who's haunting the house, or why they're still haunting the house. So it has a place. But at the end of the day, you want a group that's willing to work with you to help you to, to get peace. So when it comes to the frauds, how can you identify who the charlatans are and who are the real deal? Money. First thing, they're usually the guy that's going to charge $1,000 to go in. Um, then the next thing is grandiose promises. I have done this for over 30 years and I never promise anything. I always say exactly the same thing. I will do the very best I can to help you. And that's my answer. Um, if somebody comes in and they say, oh my God, your house is haunted by demonics and we've got to exercise the house and it's going to cost you $2,300 and you have to leave the house for a week and, and all of this, I would be exceedingly suspect at that very moment. Um, another thing I do think is a, is a good tell is, um, do you have to leave your home? A good group does not require you leave, to leave your home. They shouldn't. They should actually want you to participate. And I think in some levels, it's very important that the families participate in seeing what happens, how the evidence has gotten, filling in blanks and details for the investigators. And most importantly of all, they need to participate in taking back their own home. Right. So if they're kicking you out, they're probably stealing your stuff. Well, I mean, that's rare, but it has happened a couple of times. Oh, I'm sure. You know, and, and but on the other hand, at least, you know, recognize the fact that you have a right to be in your home. You have a right to know what's going on. And sometimes it's important that you're the one taking back your house. You're you're in control of it because when they leave, if that spirit has no respect for you, you're right back where you started from. Right. Absolutely. And what about not frauds necessarily, but how do you know if someone doesn't know what they're doing? I know it's it would be hard to distinguish the two, yeah, but would, uh, and, I mean, and, if they're not asking for money and they seem to say like they want to help and they sort of say your rhetoric, but they honestly don't, you know, have an idea. One thing I would look for is the age of the group. If the group's brand new, I would be a little concerned. Not that they have to necessarily be bad, but experience tells. Secondly, I would look at the age of the participants. If you have a guy who's 19 years old and he's coming in telling you he's an experienced demonologist or an experienced ghost hunter, I begin to question that. There's very few 17, 18, and 19-year-old experienced demonologists and ghost hunters out there. Um, 
And I've had some really startling um, issues with cases where we've had to clean up after people like that. There was a particular case in um, the Altoona area that was truly heartbreaking. The family called us in. They explained they had had a ghost hunting team come in months earlier. And that after that, the haunting just got extremely active and almost violent. And the house had been haunted for a long time. But it was a quiet, nice, normal haunting until after the ghost hunting group came in. They saw the stuff on TV. They had the woman of the house provoking the ghost, come on and hit me, come on and hit me, um, that kind of stuff. And then the house just broke loose. There were huge pounding and thumping. It sounded like somebody smashed the table in the dining room. They'd see a figure going down the stairs. This was all very new, doors slamming and things like that, all stuff that had never been part of the haunting before. So eventually they found my group through a friend who said, you know, you need to go talk to so-and-so who was a member of the group. And he brought the case to my attention. We went over and as we were sitting there talking, the, the family and myself, the group was doing its job, which is to run backgrounds and begin the research process. And um, the woman um, involved, she kept saying, I really need to talk to you. And then her husband would shut her up. He would say, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't do it. And finally, after about a half hour of this, I said, look, I can't help you if you don't tell me everything. And she just burst into tears and she explained that their son had died in a car accident about three years earlier. He was 17 years old and that the group that had been there previously had told her that because she had seen the boy at the foot of her bed a couple times, he was stuck and he was never going to be able to cross over to heaven. He was always going to have to linger here. And that was heart-wrenching for this family to think that their son could never go to heaven. Mm. Um, it was devastating. First of all, I thought it was exceedingly cruel, even if it were true, which it was not. But even if it were true, you would not tell the family that. That's just cruel. And, you know, his mother was just brokenhearted. His father was beyond brokenhearted. And then we began to talk, and it took us hours and hours of literally counseling these people to make them understand that seeing your son doesn't mean he's stuck and he can't go anywhere for the rest of eternity. And they felt much better when we left. But this was the inexperience showing. And you could see it in a multitude of things. The other thing that happened in the house is that this, fam this, this other group, I'm hoping inadvertently, opened a portal which allowed negative as well as positive things to be coming through. And we ended up having to shut that portal, deal with what was already there, and um, and then, you know, counsel and, and comfort this grieving family for a while before we left. And then after that, the haunting resumed its normal nature. And they were not seeking a ghost hunting team because they were afraid. They were just curious mm -hmm. in the beginning. So it wasn't a big deal. And it was a friend of a friend who said, hey, I, I know somebody who ghost hunts. How about we bring them over and we check the place out? And that's how simply it all started. Right. But in the end, it did a lot of damage to that family. They had called the police on multiple occasions thinking somebody had broken in their home. The, the thumping, the banging, the crashing sounds were that loud. Seeing strangers walking down your stairs, you can imagine at 3 o'clock in the morning would be terrifying. Sure. Um, and, and all of it started because it was an inexperienced young group. The median age of that group was about 19. And they just didn't know what they were doing. They were mimicking what they saw on TV. Yeah.
So they were just trying to, I mean, they weren't really trying to get famous or start a TV show, were they? They I were, were they actually so. recording it or anything? I'm sure they were recording because most every group records. I record, okay. but I record for a different reason because when you're in the heat of the moment, you sometimes miss stuff mm-hmm. and stuff gets seen on video that you simply didn't know, didn't save the naked eye. Okay. So we record for those reasons. And then we, we play it back later and we, we watch body language. We have had cases where things have happened to the person while we're talking to them. Um, physical changes, um, things touching them, stuff like that. We didn't see what was going on because we're intent on, you know, what we're doing. But when we watch the whole thing, we get the whole panorama and we're now able to see the stuff we missed. So that's why we videotape. We don't videotape with the, the end of it being, being put on TV. I don't think I've ever put a single thing I've taped on television. Okay. So that's not a tell. It's not a tell. <laughs> right there. Okay. And another thing I, I will say is, I and I've had people call me and say, particularly after right after the ghost hunting show started, do I have to be on TV to get help? I called like four or five places and they all said they would help me, but only if I'd be on TV. Right. So no, you don't have to be on TV to get help. In fact, you shouldn't be on TV to get help. Yeah. And whenever you talk about the different groups, um, uh, oh, I guess I'll, I'll go backwards just real quick. Uh, whenever you were saying about like inexperience, mm-hmm. how does one go about getting experience? Uh, <laughs> like, uh, can you start at what your f- first case was and kind of take us through what that was like? Because, you know, it is easy. You could write off people for being young, but who knows, maybe they could have done this with their parents or whatever and right. grown up through the ranks. But even at that age, of course, they would be inexperienced. Um, but how how does one know that they don't have knowledge, I guess? Well, um, I'm going to answer the questions kind of like three different questions. That so was three I'll, different questions. I'm going to answer them in pieces. First of all, yes, there are people who've grown up. My own sons have grown up in the, in the field. And they probably got more knowledge than the average person starting out, even though they're young. But I think they also have common sense enough to know they don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know everything. I would freely tell everybody on the planet, I don't know everything. I learn every time I go out. I can, I feel confident in saying I've gotten to work with some of the masters in this field and every one of them would tell you they're still learning. So, um, so even if your kids had that knowledge, um, even if they probably weren't going out in the field though yet, were they? My sons have been out in the field since they were small. Depending on the case, I would pick and choose very cautiously yeah. for them as the years went by. The really serious cases like demonics and stuff. No, they've never been to anything like that. Sure. Um, so that's where that experience and experience, experience would, be. would come in for yeah. them. Um, beyond that, um, how to get experience? You had asked that question. Mm-hmm. The best way to get experience is to work with somebody who has it to apprentice to them. Um, we have people in our group who have been with us for, you know, 20 years and some people who've been there with us for five and the fact of the matter is, um, the more you do this, the more you'll learn. So the young guys that come into the group, they come in and they start working all the different angles of it from sensitive to equipment. And I tell them, wait till you, you know, don't buy anything because I want you to figure out what you're good at. Cause usually everybody has one thing they're really good at, whether it's EVP or photographs or, um, sensing stuff or whatever it is. They've got their own gig. That's their thing. So we work through it. They get to work through every single section of it. 
And then after that, they can start to hone their skills. And we do it together as a team. We work and we teach each other. And that doesn't mean that the new guy can't teach me something because believe me, they can. And I listen. Um, But go find somebody or a group of somebodies who have done this a long time, who have a knowledge base, who are willing to participate in showing you how to do this right. Work with them, learn from them, and then recognize that, you know, even experts call each other and talk. I cannot tell you the number of times I've laid a case out in front of somebody else for a different perspective because you get so myopic in a case sometimes because you're wrapped up in it. And I want somebody else from the outside to look at it and tell me, what am I missing? Maybe I'm, I'm not seeing something. Right. Um, so learning from other people is a really good way to start to be a good investigator. Don't learn off the TV shows. Please recognize, <laughs> and I'm not trying to dish them. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, for But sure. please recognize that there's a, conden- a condensed maybe 40 to 60 hours of time spent on a site, and they chop it down to 43 minutes. Right. So it looks like every five minutes something's happening, but it's not. It's, you know, days and days and days of nothing happening. And then those moments of something possibly going on, And it gives a false sense of what to expect in an investigation. And their reactions are registered based upon um, things such as, you know, marketability and keeping your excitement, stuff like that. In real life, those are not your concerns. Mm -hmm. Your concern is your client and, and what's going on in that particular site. So, you know, those things have to all be factored in. And then you asked me about my lo- my first case. Do you yes. want to hear the story a little bit? No. Yeah, no. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I've always loved ghost stories and I've always written ghost stories. And I wrote my first book around 2000 and it was called Haunted Pennsylvania. It's a big, thick green book. And um, right after the book came out, there were a, a spate of letters coming in from people who had read the book, most of them complimentary, a few correcting my grammar because they they didn't like the way I had written something. (laughs) And then there was this one, and it was a a letter that caught my attention mostly because it was from my hometown. And the woman wrote this this letter that said, um, I need to know if ghosts can hurt you because you see my son is, is, is small. I think he was five years old at the time. And he says that the ghost at our house is going to kill him. And he's scared to death. And I don't know if there's any reason to be afraid, but I don't know what to do. And it was just very poignant. Um, And it struck me that either A, this lady was crazy. B, she was looking for attention. Or C, that family was in a really bad place. Mm. And I didn't know what the answer was, but I did know that I had to go find out. So she had left her phone number. This is long before everybody texted each other. And um, I called her up, made arrangements, and a friend of mine and I went out. And we talked to her and to the little boy and found that the house was haunted. And that was the beginning of a really interesting case for me. And that was when I realized that I wasn't just going to be writing ghost stories the rest of my life. I was going to be investigating hauntings because... As much as I loved writing the stories, there were a lot of people out there who had a need and they had nowhere to go. Right. Now, why did you feel like you had to do it? Like, didn't you know paranormal investigators at that point from 
you know, digging up your writing and all that good stuff? There were very few of them. Okay. At that time, there were not very many. And well, they're probably at that time, they wouldn't have been listed in the phone book. Well, no, you have to understand, <laughs> even writing wise, it was a, it was a small genre at mm-hmm. that point in time. And so there was um, a couple groups down in Philly and um, a couple groups up in the coal region. But there were it was not like today. Today's over seven million groups, ghost hunting groups in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a pastime for everybody. But at that point in time, there were just a few serious groups. And I knew a couple people who ghost hunted. Um, in other states. And so I contacted them and said, you know, I want to go talk to this family and see if everything's okay. And what, what should I do? And I learned by having somebody lead me through it. And now I will tell you that the way I solve the issues there are not the way I would solve it today mm. because I've grown as a ghost hunter very much so, which is another good reason to find a good solid group to learn from because you know, had I had that, I would have probably made totally different decisions today. Um, back then, I was working off of a limited knowledge base. There was a limited amount of writing on the subject, mm-hmm. certainly a limited amount of um, material available. The internet was still very, very young. And most people weren't going to it for everything. You couldn't YouTube ghost hunting and right. <laughs> you know, car repairs and everything else like you can today. You didn't have Amazon where you just type in ghost hunting accessories yes there was none of that and i mean we and actually if you look at the history of ghost hunting ghost hunting is all about taking others things and making them work for this the field from you know um harry price sprinkling uh flour on floors to see if they let footprints to us using um you know emf meters which are supposed to be finding shorts and wiring and walls that's what its original purpose was yeah um, so we take whatever we find and we try to adapt it. Now, is that still the case today or are there more ghost products being made? There are. Um, and do they work? Yeah. There's a whole market out there now for like ghost boxes and stuff like that. And um, most of it, I honestly, I'm not trying to be mean, but I don't think it's worth the money. Um, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the equipment it's it's overpriced it's complicated and usually at the end of the day it's glorified you know system that is just a more pricey version of something that has always been out there um and some of it's not true and not tried and true yet and there's no proof that any of it works right so um i'm a big fan to keep it simple you know take a, a good audio recorder and a good camera and work with decent equipment and document just document the way it's always been documented i'm not a big fan of the little stick figures and um that tap dance on tables and and you know all that other stuff um you know there is a a market and, a, and probably a good place for like uh thermals and um infrared but again even there, you have to know what you're doing. Like, for example, I know some of the TV shows in years past, they would have like a ghostly handprint on a wall. Yeah. And the thermal would pick it up. I can make that any day of the week. All you do is put your hand on a wall, wait a couple minutes, pull your hand away, and then walk by. And it'll show up because all it is is registering a temperature difference. You warmed up the... Or if you stuck your hand wall. in ice. Yeah. And or stuck if, it, yeah. <laughs> it would yeah, be exactly like black. Yeah, exactly the opposite. Um, you know, there's a lot of tricks and a lot of things that people have accidentally done. For example, you know, EMF meters, um, 
will often go off if you have a, t- a cell phone in your pocket. It the it'll go off like whenever the cell phone beeps. Um, we've seen that happen multiple times. So, uh, you know, those things have to all be accounted for. Right. So let's jump to like the, we'll, we'll assume this group that we're talking about is experienced. So, uh, what does a team look like? What, what equipment do they bring in? What do they have? Like a tech guy, do they have, uh, someone who walks around and, you know, it might be a psychic or, um, I know you talked about two different types of teams. Right. Um, some, some groups are just totally science, hard science. They want the EMF fields. They want thermals. They want infrared. They want video, audio, and stills. And that's perfectly fine. That is definitely a part of the process. Some of the best evidence I've ever seen was captured that way. Other groups are all psychic, touchy-feely, woozy-woozy. And um, some of them have great people who work really well, who get great hits. I personally am a big fan of a little bit of both. In my group, we have both. Um, we have people who are sensitive. Now they do not walk around going, oh, I see a ghost over there. They walk around very quietly with a notebook and they take down whatever they, they're getting and then they hand it to me. Very quietly, just hand it to me. And I will read down over it. And I know for that site, the history of the site, what's been going on and what have you. So I'll know if it makes sense within the context of what this family's experiencing and what the history of the site is. And um, then the equipment operators will be working and their information will then get factored in. So for example, suppose um, I'm at a house and they say they see a lady with a purple dress come down the stairs. And this happens multiple times a week. So I'm at the site and I get my sensitive hands me a paper and says, I see a lady and she comes down the stairs. She's very upset. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I just lay that aside. Now this person didn't know that information. No, because in, right? what happens is that nobody does the interviews in my group, but myself. Mm-hmm. So there's two people who will know something about it. We have a person who does a history on the place. She'll talk directly to me. Then that's it. Nobody else will know all that information. There's got to be one person who correlates everything. That's my job. And then, so I'll take what the sensitive is telling me, lay it over on the side. Then the team comes in that's been doing the scientific investigation. And they say, we've gotten strange readings on the stairs about three different times, Patty. In fact, we also caught what sounds like a woman crying on those stairs. Listen to this EVP. Well, it all fits together with what the family's telling me. And then my history person comes in and says, well, you know, in 1902, there was a woman who supposedly lost her daughter who fell down the stairs when she was three years old. They say she um, kind of went crazy and she would just wander the house at night crying. Okay, we've got a context. We've got a history. We've got something that validates the life experience of the family. We've got science, so to speak, you know, um, evidence to back that up and the sensitive also giving in their input. That's a good all-round group. It covers a little bit of everything. Is that something all the good groups should do? They come in and they have some sort of, they know the whole history of the property and the background and all that stuff. Like, is that another way to tell if they're, they know what they're doing? They should, they honestly should. Um, now there are places you can't do that, like hotels. Sure. You can do a, a, to a limited um, amount. You may be able to, maybe you could document, uh, document a murder in a hotel. 
But that doesn't mean that every person who ever lived there and had a trauma there is going to be documented. So that sometimes isn't a possibility. Mm -hmm. But to the best of your ability to tell, you should at least attempt to get a history on the property. You should attempt to talk to the people who have lived in the house and talk to them individually. Don't talk to them in a group because they feed off each other as a group. There are other things that um, I do, like I will start out when they tell me a story and I'll say, oh, that reminds me. Maybe it's a nice, simple ghost story, the lady walking down the stairs. That reminds me, I know a story about a place where a lady walked down the stairs and she would slam the door. Every every couple nights they would hear her slam the door and then they started hearing her scream on the porch. I'm, I'm escalating it mm-hmm. deliberately. If the person comes back and says, oh, you know what? Our ghost does that too. Then we have a person who's very suggestible. And then I'm a little more suspect on what they're telling me. And then maybe the next guy comes in and says, you know, that's not true. They don't really slam the doors. Once or twice we've seen what looks like the shadow of a lady walking down the stairs. That person's a little less suggestible. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of balance it overall, be rational, use common sense. And that's the one thing that I think every group needs to have is that good common sense background. And before we leave this subject, one other thing I would like to say is if you're going to deal with a group, make sure it's a group that can meet your needs. For example, not every paranormal group can do a demonic case. Most groups that are ghost hunters are ghost hunters. They deal with ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a woman tell me an amazing story. She was um, demonically oppressed by an incubus, which is a sexual demon. She ended up getting um, in touch with John Zaffis eventually. But prior to that, a very prominent ghost group in Pennsylvania, one that actually made it to television, um, came in, they ran equipment for a couple weeks, could not find anything in the house, which if you knew the difference between a paranormal group and a demonologist, demons don't respond the same way. They don't trip the equipment. They don't do the same stuff. And so they basically told her, look, there's nothing here. You must be nuts. You need to go seek some, some mental help. She almost had herself committed Mm -hmm. to a mental institution. Um, And she told a very dramatic story about that decision and about going to that facility and thinking that once she walked through those doors, she wouldn't be a wife, she wouldn't be a mother, she wouldn't be a bus driver, she wouldn't be a normal person anymore, that her whole life would be over. And then something inside of her just kind of made her turn around and say, no, no, not all of this was my imagination. It was not. The bites, the bruises, the stuff that happened to me, it's not all my imagination. So she turned around and she went home and a few days later came across somebody who led her to John's office. And then two, I believe, two exorcisms at least. So these decisions that people, these families make could be very detrimental. I mean, not only to your health, but, you know, she almost went to like a psych facility. I've had those kinds of stories. I had, I told you a story, I think a few weeks ago about a family um, who spent money to rewire their entire house, put a new furnace in because the scientific group said there was nothing going on. And the haunting continued despite the fact that they said, oh, it's just bleed off of EMF and it's causing hallucinations. It's an old house with old gutta percha wiring. And so they replaced all the wiring and the haunting continued. Then they said, well, it's got to have something to do with, um, you know, we're a scientific group. And so it's got to have something to do with uh, carbon monoxide. So they replaced their entire furnace system. And it came up to like twenty or $30,000 of, of 
renovations. And still the house was haunted because it wasn't the gutta percha wiring. Although EMF fields can have adverse effects for humans. It's interesting. You can go onto the OSHA website and read about that. Um, and it wasn't the carbon monoxide, which can also have an adverse effect, but it's not hallucinations. It's death that, you know, could happen. And the group's attitude was we're a scientific group, so we're not getting any evidence. So you, it must be something else. But at the same time, the family was still experiencing that level of haunting. So isn't that kind of bad though? That, <laughs> that they're totally science-based and shouldn't they have like at least one psychic or I think something that there like should that? Be a balance. I would think that the better group of those two groups that's not a mix like you would be the psychic only group. Not necessarily because then you see the opposite side of that is they start feeding off of each other. If you get 12 people who are psychic, mm -hmm. either they're going to turn into a cat fight because they're all going to be seeing something different or they're going to start feeding off of each other and build a storyline mm -hmm. that doesn't have anything to do with history and fact. So it's that down the middle of the road where the stuff that the family is experiencing has to be in context with the history of the property and then the evidence and then what the sensitives are telling us. It all has to make sense, that common sense thread. Right. So, um, you know, you have to look for something that makes sense. If somebody tells me, um, I often use this, this idea when I'm in a lecture. Suppose I'm, I go to a property in um, Cambria County, Pennsylvania, and there's a, it's a heavily Catholic area. And there used to be a monastery sitting on this property. And there, yet there's a woman seen, you know, in the front hall of what used to be the main, main building of the monastery. And she's very disheveled and crying. And I look at the property's history and I see it was woods, it was farmland, it was a monastery. And it's still that today. Where did she come from? Mm -hmm. She makes no sense. But as we're doing the historical research, we come across a newspaper article that says in 1927, um, a young woman and her boyfriend were riding in a horse and buggy. A car spooked the horse and it ran out of control. And she ended up being badly injured right outside the monastery gates. The monks took her in, were rendering aid while somebody went for a doctor and she died in the front hall. Now I have a context for my ghost. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so we'll say, um, well, how, how many groups do you think are mixed? Do you, do you think it's a majority one way or the other? I would say there's probably about 70% of the groups are mixed and then the rest of them are either one or the other. Um, you know, but like I said, don't let any one thing overtake you. Don't let it all be, you know, oh my God, she said this and she said that. You have to use common sense. Any more than you should stick to just, oh, I didn't get anything, so nothing happened in this house. If you didn't get anything, okay, you just didn't get anything in the luck of the draw that night. Ghosts don't manifest every single night on cue. They just don't. It is one of the things that has been the bane of paranormal research from the beginning. One of the reasons scientists don't want to deal with it is because it's not replicable. You can't take it into a, um, a scientific laboratory. You can't tell it to, to function on command and hope for it to happen. Are you sure? Yep, pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, there's no way to do it. 
Because I always wondered, I thought, okay, are these, like, is science just not wanting to deal with it just for the fact that they don't want to deal with it because it could be they think it's woo-woo, mumbo jumbo No, like, I've talked to people, like, at Ryan Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, um, and actually presented there. And they wanted to know, as the ghost hunting shows were beginning, um, what do ghost hunters do? Because they deal with psychical research, which is, you know, sensitives. Mm -hmm. They can take a person and put them in a laboratory and have them perform on cue. This was their their big frustration is what do we do if we're going to start looking at paranormal research? So the um, option came, they invited 10 different groups from across the country. My group turned out to be one of the 10. In fact, we were the first of the 10. And they picked a, a number of different sites um, and they said, take us with you, show us how to do this. So we did. We were very lucky. We got to do the North Carolina State Capitol building, which is an, a completely closed down site at night, completely wired with equipment. And we had activity almost every time we were there. We were there like five or six times. But we had to take them to the site and hope that the phenomena would happen on cue. There are a few really good research projects where people have um, literally wired a, haunt, a haunted house for months, mm -hmm. sealed it, and then participated there's a wonderful piece of footage out there on youtube from christopher chacon of a house in california where they actually closed the house down had people watching all the entrances and exits and then had motion sensitive cameras inside slaved to different spots that caught activity but that's an anomaly that's expensive and time consuming and it's not what the but the majority of groups are able to pr provide because people have to live in their homes right well, is what he captured discounted? No, it's actually like does it, wouldn't it only take just one one time to go? Okay, that's real. I don't think that it's discounted. I mean, first of all, he is a he is a um, reputable paranormal investigator. He's not he's he actually has a degree in the field. There's only a few people who actually had a degree in the field. Um, Wait, paranormal research investigation inf investigation? Yeah. Where? Um, Where do you get Lloyd such Ar a degree? Well, you can't now. You, at one ah. point, um, like Lloyd Arbach has a degree in the field. Um, at one point, there were a couple universities that offered it for a little while. Um, but so these particular people, Barry Taft, um, like I said, Chris Chacon, Lloyd Arbach, there's a few people out there who did this and who have degrees in this field who have caught phenomenal data. The problem is that all of that phenomenal hard work has been forgotten and swept under the carpet to a large extent by the hysteria generated by shows like Ghost Hunters, which I have nothing against. But again, it's not that careful documentation that occurred mm -hmm. um, in these particular events where they had you know, professional videographers coming in and filming and professional... Uh, police officers and what have you observing and all of this stuff going on at the same time and equipment monitoring everything that was going on environmental changes and um, temperatures and all of this stuff at the same time that data is still sitting out there but nobody's using it well that's a bummer it is <laughs> but it's it, I mean, and people don't recognize i mean barry taff has a has a following in and lloyd arbuck has a following but people have no clue how vastly more experienced these people are mm -hmm. than the people that are on the TV shows, how, how much more bona fides they have 
than the people on the TV shows and how cutting edge they were. What they captured, for example, Barry Taft was among the people who captured the first photograph ever. I believe it's still the only photograph ever um, certified by Popular Mechanics to have been paranormal in nature. It is a photograph that they cannot explain to mm. this day. And do you know what it's called? It just look up the, uh, Barry Taft in the photograph okay. and you'll find the photograph. Um, and it's uh, two reverse arcs that are free floating in air. They're not bending. Like, like if you put a flashlight on a wall in a corner, it'll bend the light in the corner of the wall. This is literally free floating in midair. Okay. Um, so it had matter. How old was this? This photograph would have been 70s, early 70s. So no Photoshop. No Photoshop, and this was taken. It was taken directly to popular mechan or to popular photography, which then tried to discount it, and then came out and said, "This was the only photograph we've ever seen. We can't discount." So, I mean, I would just assume that that's the only one in the history of the world, right? I mean, that has been going certified. forward. Well, going forward, yeah. you have Photoshop. You could fake almost anything. Today, yeah. But right. I mean, there are a few other photographs that are really phenomenal. Um, the Brown Woman of Rhinum Hall. Um, you know, there are a few photographs that are classics that that were very much earlier. Now, even back in, though, you have to recognize, though, that there was spirit photography in the late 18, early 1900s right. where they faked stuff. But this was a completely different beast. Right. And you could tell the difference between them very readily. So there's like a period of time where... It was the golden age for this this type of stuff. Right around the time when, um, you know, the um, seances and what have you were really, really popular. Right. Right after the Civil War. Okay. There's actually a really great podcast episode on Twisted Philly mm -hmm. about the history of the spiritual movement, yes. um, especially on, you know, the eastern coast right i guess well lilydale was the oldest spiritualist community in the world and that's in western new york it's a phenomenal place i love going there um some of the history is is really interesting a little checkered at places but um on the whole phenomenal and i actually had probably one of my own personal most amazing experiences at lilydale i wonder if we should save that for another episode I think we can. because i i think the spiritual movement might be its own episode <laughs> that'll be pretty cool um okay so Let's unpack the TV shows for a minute because a lot of people want to know, like, it's really easy to fake a lot of it. Like, oh, pound on that door. And then a producer, pound, pound, pound behind the door. I mean, y you as a spectator, you could watch it and go, I know how they did that. I know how they did that. Um, how much of it is actually real? Is any of it real? Are these people actually ghost hunters? Some of the, I mean, I don't, I cannot possibly speak for all of the people. I certainly don't know all of the people. Um, some of the ones in the early shows, the early, um, early series, they were ghost hunters. They, they ghost hunted for years and years. Um, but you also have to recognize the fact that they're being um, financed by a production company that wants to make a product consistently that they can make a profit on. They need results. So they have to have results. And you, every time you go out, you're not gonna get something. I'm sorry, it's just not that way. There are lots of times you go out and get skunked. So um, I cannot say that I have firsthand knowledge. I have heard that there were 
disreputable things that occurred. Um, I certainly suspect there were disreputable things that occurred on occasion based upon the fact that there was a lot of pressure on them to get results because there's hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode riding on you finding something. You know, a, a trip to Myrtle's plantation or to um, Jefferson's home would not be very interesting if there's no paranormal activity at yeah. the end of it. Absolutely. So that becomes a factor. You have to recognize that this is, um, they call them docudramas. They're not documentaries. Mm -hmm. They're not literally accurate. Some of them are wildly inaccurate. And this is a story that I actually have had um, some experience with. We, um, Mark Nesbitt and uh, some friends of us, of mine, and I were in Gettysburg at Halloween one year. And we were signing books. We had previously done um, a television show for Travel Channel um, called Mysterious Journeys. And we'd done several episodes of that between us. And we were getting phone calls that Mark was on TV and different people in the group were on TV. And they were doing a live Most Haunted episode in Gettysburg. And we're like looking at each other going, what are they talking about? We're not doing anything like that. And but this repeatedly was happening from people all across the, the country that were friends of Mark's who were and different ones of us that were there that were calling us or texting us and going, why didn't you say you were going to be almost haunted tonight? Blah, blah, blah. So on a break from the book signing, we all went over to Mark's house and we're sitting there looking and watching the show. And there's Mark, but he's sitting in the living room with me. And what we realized very quickly was that they had bought footage, outtake footage from Mysterious Journeys and were weaving it in to the most haunted episode as though they were there live. So they would have somebody ask a question and Mark answer it. Is that legal? I guess so. They did it. Was it in your contract? <laughs> no, I have no idea about that part. But but that, I mean, that's how wildly inaccurate it could get. Oh, I guess we should clarify what you were doing on that TV show because we've talked about the not taking money thing and all that stuff. I did get you... paid for that. Oh, you didn't? No, you didn't oh, get okay. paid for that. Well, regardless, what, what were yeah. you doing? Just interviews? Um, like, can we, can yeah, we I was a, what they call see? talking head. I was a talking head about a couple different places I had been yeah. telling some stories in history. That's cool. Um, but, you know, and Mark had, had done the same. But, and it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it. But uh, it was really a bizarre moment to realize that they were running this live. And people all across the world were watching this show thinking that these people were really there. They weren't. At least this thing had been shot at least 9 to 12 months earlier. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so that's how that's inaccurate so, it could get. That's so cheap. Yeah. It's so, oh, that's awful. That's intellectually dishonest. And even the history that was being presented that night was inaccurate, completely inaccurate. They had a historian there. She um, was telling them all this history. And I'm sitting there with a gentleman who happens to be a phenomenal historian on the Battle of Gettysburg in Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting there going, that's not true. So actor. Probably. No, I mean, so I don't know, but she certainly didn't have her history straight. Yeah. Well, it's hard to be a historian and not have your history straight. <laughs> so, well, I mean, history can change, but she was wildly inaccurate in some spots. Sure. Yeah. Well, hmm. Okay. I I mean, we. I think we all assume that they're fake at this point. At some point, yeah, they are. Yeah. Most of them. I can't say all of them. Right. Because I can't imagine you'd get 26 episodes worth of good stuff. 
No. And like I said, that doesn't mean that they weren't good investigators. They didn't start out well. Or even that all the stuff on the shows are, is fake. It's just, you know, right. you have to realize the pressure of, they have a schedule they set up every year. We're going to go to this place, this place, this place, and this place. And you're going to sure. get this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what is like your longest case ever? As in, you went there a couple times and nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing. Like, how long were you strung along on a case before? 17 years. Wait, you kept going back and nothing happened? Yep. <laughs> Excuse me. 17 years. Wait, is it over now or is it still going? Still going. It's, it's a haunting in a place um, in Bedford County. <laughs> okay. And it's what they call an anniversary haunting. So it happens on the anniversary of the event every year. So every year we would go. We never had any event. Nothing happened. But it became kind of like a local, um, for our group, kind of an annual outing. Mm-hmm. And so as it, we just went every year on the off chance. And on the 17th year, I got probably the most amazing EVP I've ever gotten in my life. And it was an entity. I got three EVPs. I got a gentleman speaking French. Um, another one, who uh, the, another the same voice saying um, his name was, um, and what his name was in French. And then a third voice or a third person, or a third EVP, second person. I apologize. Um, and he says, Yankees dead. And um, we did some research and found out that this Yankees was the um, a bastardization, the French and the British being the primary Europeans in America at the time. The French called the English the Inglés. The Inglés we got became, um, when the Iroquois Confederacy heard it, become Yankees, which becomes Yankee eventually. And um, what actually happened there was that there was a, a massacre of white people, Yankees, by the Indians there. Hmm. I think I listened to that a long time ago. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think you brought your laptop that first time we ever met. Yeah, and and that really shook me that one because it it just sounded like you know all the Native Americans are pretty much gone from Pennsylvania mostly, and I I was like, wow. I mean, that sounds absolutely authentic. It's the same with the uh, the French voice. And one of the things I found interesting about that is I actually had a friend who had lived in France. And there's much, there's a, a huge difference between um, high school French and colloquial French, which is the way a French person would naturally form words. Mm -hmm. And she listened to it and she said, oh my God, this is amazing because this is a French person speaking French. You can tell the difference. And she explained you know, the, all the things that she listened for that she would have heard as a person who had lived in France and spoke French versus, you know, the stilted high French of the high school French. So regarding EVPs, like say somebody goes off in a corner or whatever, and they try to take an EVP and they come back with something. How do you know whether it's faked or whether it's real? Because I, I can say from my experience of listening to the EVPs that you got, it sounds like a human, but not. Well, I, I don't know how how else to describe it. It's yeah. It doesn't sound like you and me. It has a hollow talking. Yeah, it has a hollow. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't have any it has base a hollow sound. To yeah, it. yeah. Um, but the answer to the question is that we don't go off by ourselves to get EVP. There is always a teammate with you. Um, quite often there's a camera on you. Mm. Um, so there's documentation. Right. Once in a while, you know, especially in the early years. Um. We, we would go off on our own because there was just a few of us. But one of those fraud groups could already, like, they're outside. Oh, dead.
people <laughs> and then yeah. they, they walk in and they're like i got something but yeah. there are also other things you do like we put them on um on a voice analysis and we look at the way the the letters are pan the the sound of the sounds pancake right and we look at if it's in human range of speech mm-hmm. we look at the cadence of what's being said there's things that you can't mask about your voice um that we can look at your voice and then look at that voice and say educated guess that is not the same voice okay you know the way you you say your letters things like that that doesn't change yeah it was almost like the ghost was struggling to make the sounds they tend to be a little slower like i think probably one of my the most interesting examples of that was at um a place up in Haldaysburg where I actually was sitting in a room with a friend of mine and we were on break and I said to her, her son was going to get her a drink of water and I said, hey, would you mind grabbing me one while you're over there? And you hear this voice come on the tape. We were just sitting there and we always kept a tape running no matter where we were. And you hear this female voice come on very slow and soft and she goes, yes, water please. And that's is about as close as I can get. Very slow and hollow and um, drawn out and warbly. And there was three of us in the room. Two of us were, you know, we'd already spoken. And we we're only two females. The other was a young man in his um, like late teens. And yet you could clearly hear this female, this third female come into the conversation. Um, so, you know, there's a a knack for it but on the other hand there's also some some ways to put it up on um we use audacity and a couple other programs and we look it over right and tear it apart and also on some recorders especially and also with with photos um you know there's information built into them and if you mess with them and caught and change them in any way whether to edit a picture or an um audio it will change that information and we can tell when we look if it's doctored yeah Mm -hmm. For sure. I guess one last question I have about your role and everything. When when do you or do you uh, start doing your thing with the gifts that you have? You said you, you do and you lead the research and all that stuff, but do you actually jump in eventually? And Yes. When would that be? Is it because like- you're needed or because? Yeah. I let the team do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. That's important because... Um, the family needs that documentation the whole time I'm sitting there with the family. And then um, when it's time for the serious work of either crossing the person or brokering whatever kind of deal has to be brokered between them, making the family understand what's going on, what have you, that's when I usually step in um, and assist. And and usually um, there's a couple other people with me who will work with me um, my friend Charlie and my friend Laura are very, very often chief among those. Um, and, you know, there's a moment when it goes from if it's fun and let them investigate to, okay, it's time to take care of business. And I'm I'm the, there as part of the team that takes care of the business. Mm-hmm. So then when are you needed? Usually, um, well, sometimes during the process because the family's struggling, but then always usually whenever it's time to either do the house cleansing, the blessing, that kind of stuff, that's usually part of my job. Right. Like, do you have other, are there others in the group who can also see them and talk to them? Yes. Okay. And like sometimes um, one of them might make a better connect than me. Okay. Or the other way around, I might make a better connect than they do. Um, And we work as a team together to do that. 
Um, but, you know, when it comes to the serious work of solving the issues, which is the main difference between what we do and what a lot of ghost hunting groups do, we solve the problem to the best of our ability or attempt to. Because you come at it through psychology. And for yeah, the most part, we try to and we try to, um, you know, try to address the issues so the family can have some peace. Right. And quite often so that the person who's passed along it can have some peace. Yeah. You know, it's tragic to think of a person who died under a, a bad circumstance who has relived that moment for 120 years. Right. That's a form of hell in and of itself. I would think so. Yeah. And you see that a lot like on, on battlefields. It's tr really terrible to um, see a young boy who's badly wounded, who doesn't need to be there suffering, but who doesn't have the perception to know, I don't have to be here anymore. Right. And to have the ability to help their family to come and get them is, it's a gift. It's, it's challenging. It's emotional. It can be very, very, very painful. But on the other hand, it's also very gratifying because the boy's not suffering anymore. Right. You know, we talked in another episode about how people can come back. Mm-hmm. How comes nobody comes back for them, do you think? For the person who's on the battlefield or what have you? Yeah, the person who's stuck. How comes... I, I don't know that nobody comes back for them. I think it's more that they don't see them. Perception is reality. You'll hear me say that a thousand times. Yeah. And they're so caught up in the moment of their death or the horror of what happened to them, they're not looking. So when we walk them back a little bit, we slow them down a little bit, we start talking to them and getting them to start looking. And at the same time, you know, we'll be praying, dear Lord, send to the, to the door, send to the light, somebody that they will recognize, somebody that will comfort them and ease them over. And then, you know, we start trying to help them to find that person. And when they finally see that person, then we can complete that process. Right. So our ghosts, do they have the same abilities as us as far as seeing ghosts? Are ghosts able to see ghosts? It's interesting. All some, the time? Or some do they have can. to be sort of sensitive? I think No, I think it has to do with perception. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like I, I'm a ghost. I'm, I live in this ghost world. Like if you're stuck in the moment of your own dem demise yeah. and the events that happened to you and you're not looking beyond that, you don't notice it. But then there are people who've passed on who are there for a different reason. For example, I have a Nova place where the lady haunts it and she, her answer is I spent 35 years paying for this house. It's mine. And she knows there's other people that haunt it from other time frames. And she'll point them out. She's fine with it. But um, she recognizes them. Of course, you're referring to Mrs. Kitzmiller. I am. Who lives in Mark Nesbitt's... Ghost of Gettysburg. Ghost of Gettysburg. Yep. Candlelight walking towards house. Go yes. visit Miss, <laughs> Mrs. Kitzmiller. She's, she's a hoot. She is absolutely a hoot. <laughs> but she's also very conscious of the other dead people that are there. She'll tell you about them. Mm -hmm. Or she'll say, there's somebody that needs your help. Why don't you, you know, why don't you go upstairs? That person's up there. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's about their perception. Everything in life is about perception for the living and the dead. You know, if you, it's how you perceive it. A person could walk up to you and say, hi, you might perceive it as kind. If you've had a really bad day, you might think they're being snarky. Yeah. Um, it's all about perception. Do you think they, the ones that are suffering, see their wounded brothers on the field? I like, do they seem to think that they're suffering or do they think that they are in the war and they're still there and 
everybody is like in carnage around them? Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they're confused by why will no one talk to me? I've mm-hmm. heard that a lot. Why will no one talk to me anymore? Um, sometimes they're just caught up in their own physical pain and they don't realize they don't have to. We've actually said to somebody, you know, you're, you're dead. You don't have arms anymore or legs. It cannot hurt. You need to let it go. Mm-hmm. But their perception was of that immense pain at the moment of death and they hung on to it. That raises interesting questions about consciousness. It does. Because you think that your brain, so like your brain and your soul, I always thought were two different things. And um, sometimes I find myself thinking ideas that I don't know where it came from, you know? So I'm like, stop it, brain, you know, knock it off. Um, but if you're dead, that sounds like that can still happen too. Your your mind can betray you even though you don't have a mind. Well, you don't. You don't have the hard hardware. You don't have the hardware. Yeah. But you still have, and I think that that part of that consciousness is part of, of our soul because we are sentient beings. Which makes me wonder like what the brain generates versus what the soul generates. Because if I have warring thoughts in my head, are they both me? Well, that could bring me down to a bunch of other topics as <laughs> oh. well. Like, um, you know, walk-ins and um, spirit possession, all kinds of things. Yeah. That brings you out to a whole lot, different set of topics. That's definitely one I'd like to explore because I've always thought, what are you, your brain or your soul? And I think I have a better idea nowadays that it's more your soul than your brain. Uh, the brain is just the hardware. When you think of it in computer terms, it makes a lot more sense. One of the things that's really interesting, I actually just had this conversation today with a therapist where I work, and she was telling me about a um, video she recently watched where they were talking to, um, they wired a person who had multiple personalities, and they asked the person if they could hit a button when they were starting to switch personalities, because sometimes they can tell you when they're switching. Mm. Um, And the person did, and the brainwave pattern changed at approximately the same moment that they hit the button. So can't they stop it? No, it just happens, but they can feel it changing. Right. They're like, oh, I'm slipping away again. It's like being sick. You can feel it happening, but you can't stop it from happening. Okay. Um, And so they were actually wiring the brain to read the brainwaves, and they found that the brainwave pattern, which is unique to us, changed as the person changed personalities. Hmm. So the hardware was the same. Right. But But the software is changing. Yeah. Sounds more like a virus to me. But it's really interesting. <laughs> I, I got a Trojan in my head. <laughs> Perhaps. But, you know, and, and uh, the brain's a, the mind's an amazing um, tool. And what it can do is an amazing tool, whether what it does for us or against us. A lot of psychology is really about rewiring the way the brain functions. Right. Because, you know, people have a negative brain that's looking at you know you're stupid you're dumb you can't do anything you're helpless you're whatever and when you change that process and you give them self-worth and you give them um all these other tools that they're in command it changes the way their brain functions makes sense yeah we'll definitely have to unpack all this on a different episode because <laughs> see we're, we're going to get philosophical sometimes on this podcast too it's going to this podcast is going to be a lot of stuff it is. It's going to be tons and tons of things over the course of time because we wander, you and I, mm-hmm. all over the universe, literally. And, you know, we talk about everything from 
tulpas to creating ghosts to psychology and and spirit spiritualism and and religion and all kinds of different things yeah so hold on to your butts to quote jurassic park (laughs) (laughs) there's more to come yeah there's more to come eventually we'll have a cool catchphrase and that's what i'll say to sign off but for now we'll uh we'll see you guys later